Our God is an awesome God. He's gay and he fucks men's butts with jizz. It makes him come. Our God is an awesome God. That always gets me fired up, man. Yeah. God, dude, I feel great tonight. Much yeah. better than normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Squatted, shot in a beer. Yeah. For free. Yeah. Fucking A, man. The rules, man. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I got a story to tell you, and it was so hard to not tell you the whole time because it happened last week, and I was in a car with you all day today, and I just had to bite it on. Yeah. Dude, this Armenian couple came uh-huh. into the bar. They were visiting Hot Springs. They had a condo, and they were trying to get me to pound their daughter. She was 22. And they were really trying to set us up. It was crazy. What do you mean? Like, all right. So they had a con, like my grandparents used to have a condo in hot springs when I was a little kid and they had a condo at the same place. And that's what like sparked the conversation is I'm like a good bartender. So I'm always like, yes, from out of town. They're like, yeah, I'm like, what are you, what are you up to this weekend? They're like, oh, we got this condo. And I was like, that's crazy. I used to go there when I was a kid. They still got the same pool and shit. They're like, no, they redid the pool. That's the start of the conversation off. And is then, it Beacon uh, Manor? No, it's uh, it's out this way. Oh, okay. Anyway, we're uh, started talking about that, and then their daughter's sitting there, and she was bigger. She was like, "All right, looking," but you know, she yeah. was plump. But they were like, "Yeah, this is our daughter. She's a senior at the University of Missouri. She's working on whatever fucking degree she was working on." I was like, "That's great. I need more of it was like some social worker or some shit," and. Uh, they were like, you work here full time. And I was like, well, kind of like used to own part of a restaurant. And like, I just needed to get something real quick. Like I want to, oh, they're like, oh, you're like a businessman. I was like, yeah, I mean, kind of, I just like to make food. And they're like, oh, we like a guy with ambition. They're like super Armenian, you know? So yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. like, they're like, the guy's telling me like all the shit that he hustled to make money. And they're rich, of course. And then, uh, they were like, yeah, so we got this this uh condo it's got two bedrooms like hers is like way on the other side and i was like well that's nice you don't want to sleep like right next to your parents they're like yeah like we wanted to come out here and have a good time i was like oh yeah i mean there's a lot of shit to do in hot springs she could definitely go to like downtown and hit the bars you know like she's trying to like have fun there's definitely shit for young people to do in hot springs and they're like yeah she's had a couple boyfriends we were always cool with them staying over at the house like, guys really like her. She's a lot of fun. It's like, okay. And they're mm-hmm. like, where are you? What time do you guys close? I was like, yeah, probably like 9 o'clock. And they were like, oh, that's like, you should come check the condo out. I was like, no, nah, I got to get home to like my wife and kids. They're like, well, we're leaving in like three days. It's like, okay. They're like, we didn't come over anytime. Leave the pool, we'll leave you guys alone. <laughs> the fuck it took me a minute to just be like you guys are trying to press me to fuck your daughter yeah and then she was like definitely uncomfortable with it but at the same time she was like they went outside and she was like trying to trying to tell me like shit she was into she was like i like modest mouse a bunch you ever listen to them and i was like i've heard them but it's not not like what i'm into she's like what are you into i was like i mean like you know heavy metal death metal rap She's like, oh, like what rap? And I was like, I really like Honeycomb Brazy, Three Six Mafia. Been listening to this guy Skinny Finsta a bunch. She's like, what's that? And it's like, it's like a German guy that <laughs> does Memphis rap. 
she was like, you got to be German, right? And I was like, yeah, probably something like that. And she was yeah. like, I love big white guys. Like, okay. Wow. It was crazy. <laughs> they were really trying to set me up with her. <laughs> and then they were trying to lead. Do they wrote her fucking cell phone number? The dad wrote her cell phone number. What'd you do with it? Fucking turned it in. I have to put my. To the cops? <laughs> <laughs> no, I got to turn in like my tip receipts. It was yeah, so yeah, ridiculous, yeah. man. Crazy. That is crazy. Crazy. Can you imagine doing that with your no, kid, dude? No, no, Like in her 20s trying to just get someone to come over and no, cram? No. Mm-mm. It kind of just like, it's like, wow. Like, what's he get out of it? I don't know. Hearing her scream real loud? Maybe. Jacking off to Could have been that. Or. He just wants everyone to get I don't know if their customs are different and they want someone to like. Yeah. Really wear her in. I guess. Maybe dislocate her hips, you know? Yeah. No, he was talking to me about, like, sports and stuff. He was like, yeah, like, girls like her don't meet a lot of athletes and shit. It's like, okay. I like how, yeah. <laughs> I like that, man. I love that. They're yeah. Like, That's an athlete. <laughs> they, yeah, they just wanted her to get pounded out. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> oh, man. Coming from two guys who ate fucking three candy bars when you go live ways dude it works it helps yeah, it does help, i'm an athlete i got sure. a hell of a pump dude it gets it going dude yeah 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 sugar that's like the time you need it yeah and a lot of people fuck up and have it like after they work out yeah that's always a thing it's like it's recover. it's like no nah, that's not recovery dude that's no. not good for you it's not good for you to eat it before you lift that's the honest truth yeah but it does really help yeah it does definitely helps you get more of a pump i like it I didn't get a pump today, but I felt pretty strong. Hey, you, were. you were. Yo, so this week, I don't. I hate to try to. You, you, here's the thing that I hate about true crime podcasts, right? So, uh-huh. like, I've said this before, but everyone does research, and what the research always entails is like compiling a couple of articles and then making it like writing it down, like it's your own words. It's not, and that's what every true crime podcast news source. I get it. Why though? Like, why don't I just find a good article, run through it, and riff on it? I think that's the formula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this is a uh, pretty cool guy with a pretty cool name. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, he got his name. He he he's really like a um. <laughs> What's the fucking guy's name? The dude that was like the uh, most of uh, Henry Lee. He's real like a, a minor league Henry Lee Lucas. Okay. Because the reason he he got the name, the bullshitter, not from. Shitting his pants. Not from shitting his pants, but from just being full of shit. So yeah. what, what's hard is that when you. catch a serial killer you get like you catch a guy that's definitely killed a few people and then they start to hit you with these fucking tales of i've done this i've done that mm-hmm. i've done this you have to take it at face value yeah. because like it's obviously you can tell when someone's telling you shit like that that they're they want to be cool but you they have also murdered people. And yeah. You verify they murdered people, so you you can't just glaze over it like 
this guy's full of shit. You have to fucking actually look into it, which sucks if you're a cop because you got to do like legwork and find out if these murders are true. And then if you find out like three out of a hundred are true, it's got to be a mind fuck. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like the other thing is just like, really like some of these people, especially like the, the type of uh, brain patterns they have, they really believe their own shit, you know? Oh yeah, definitely. So, but yeah, Robert Charles Brown, aka the Bullshitter, this week on Death Metal. <laughs> you got anything before we go? Uh, no. No. Good, because I'm trying to revamp and just stay on. Okay. So, <laughs> let's see how that works. All right, let's hit it, doggy. So this is this is a New York Times article, and it's from the perspective of the FBI that's trying to find out how full of shit this guy is. Yeah, which again, wild spot to be in. At this late hour of life, Charles Hess said the question: Why didn't matter anymore? After all the years he. Sp- Spent in the FBI, tilting at the criminal mind. All his years in private practice running lie detector tests. His time extracting secrets as a CIA agent in Vietnam was no longer interested in why. What counted were simple, incontestable facts. Who, when, why, where, what. Names, dates, location, cause and manner of death. These were his goals when he tried to flesh out the transgressions of a man by his own account killed 48 people. Yeah. Robert, can you remember what year it was? Was the body north or south of the highway? Where did you get the ice pick? Why? Was a bottomless and slippery and often fraught with useless moral overtones? Why? Didn't cold cases. Why? Was for intellectuals. And Charlie Hess had seen enough of them to say there were two kinds of people, intellectuals and those who got shit done. Yeah. Now, here he was at 2 a.m. on a cold November night, escorting an interviewer to a rental car parked outside his trailer in a poor neighborhood on the east side of Colorado Springs. I could pack up and move tomorrow. Just give me my woman and my dogs, he said, craning his head at the back of the torrent of stars above the front range. He said that the footloose spirit came from gypsy blood on his father's side. A little racist. Footloose? Yeah, man. He's got the, you know, he wants to uh, get out. I was like, Kenny Loggins was talking to him. Going footloose. Footloose. Give this guy the fucking noose. Spirit came from his gypsy blood on his father's side, but he was 80. After two heart operations, a brush with death from kidney failure, and two hip replacement surgeries, that'll be me. Yeah, A couple of those things, for Mm -hmm. sure. You had to wonder if his wanderlust had a leg to stand on. (laughs) Wow. Under the wan streetlight, he looked a little like Spencer Tracy after a hard (laughs) winter. For the past five years, Hess had worked as a volunteer in the El Paso County Sheriff's Office's cold case unit in Colorado Springs. He'd helped to organize files no one had looked at, in some cases for decades. Then he began poring over one case in particular. He started writing letters and tracking down names. He'd done hundreds of interviews. 
He'd made dozens of trips by car for meetings at the penitentiary an hour south near Canyon City. He faxed police jurisdictions all over the West. He sifted through jewelry boxes for a stolen wedding ring. Two or three times, frustrations had got the better of him and he had quit. But he always came back, persevering as the months rounded into years. It wasn't as if he lacked other interests. He could have been fishing. He could have been walking the dogs. He had two daughters, a grandson, two great-granddaughters, and his wife, Joe, with whom he was so happy he could scarcely bring himself to eat when she left to visit relatives. So why? Why spend so many hours trying to beguile a man already locked away for life with no hope of parole? There are five or six reasons, he said, with a long-suffering sigh. He'd already mentioned he didn't care for golf. He'd already explained he wanted to be of use before he was ushered off the stage. He'd already confessed to a competitive streak and the satisfaction of showing the office hotshots he still had chops. One of his deepest reasons was not a secret at all. His son-in-law had been murdered in Colorado Springs in 1991. Damn. Personal tie to the case. Ooh. I remember this shit, too. Like, I, this is when I was living in Colorado Springs. Damn. I mean, too young for that, but they brought it up several times throughout. Because, yeah. you know, it's an infamous... Like, Colorado Springs is a city. When you tell people that you're from there, they think of a huge city. But it's kind of like... I mean, it's where... Focus on the family is and shit, so it's like a really Christian right-leaning yeah. sect in Colorado, which is unusual for Colorado, kind of, because the cities, the bigger cities are all super liberal. Like, yeah. you know, we went to Fort Collins, which isn't a big city, but that's all, like, oh yeah, every fucking yard had, like, that Black Lives Matter, viruses do exist, we believe in science, Yeah, gay people are people, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, those yeah, fucking yeah. signs, it's all like that. Boulder is as hippie as it gets, Denver super liberal. Well, the Springs is holding it down. There's two military bases. It's like a super conservative community. So it is a big city, but it definitely has like a small town feel to it just because everybody's so like precise on looking a certain way and being an upstanding moral citizen. You don't have a lot of wild shit going on there all the time. Sure. Some I've told you about, he reminded me, but the others I won't. Could one assume... The others have to do with feelings you have about things that happened in the past. Maybe when you were in the Bureau or in Vietnam. Things you feel now you want to atone for in some way. He seemed almost amused, like Gary Kasparov contemplating a poisoned pawn from high school chess club upstart. You're a very good interrogator, he said, but you'll never get that out of me. Which probably means he killed a bunch of people in Vietnam and in the CIA. Yeah. And he won't won't cop to he's trying to make up for that by Yeah. Dude, the CIA sucks. Yeah. It's crazy. They're you watch that new JFK documentary that Oliver Stone put out? Uh uh-uh. uh. Fuck man. <laughs> uh, what's it on? Showtime. Nah. Don't have showtime. It's like a dollar a month if you have Amazon Prime. Oh, is it? Yeah. Right on. But it's 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 wild. I mean it's more they definitely examine like the shooting and what probably happened, but they more so put a spotlight on the CIA oh, and yeah. how, because, you know, Kennedy and I knew a lot of the shit, but I didn't know near as in depth about how much he was out to shut down the CIA. Cause when he gives that speech where he's like, I'm so tired of secret societies where the bunch of fellas that get together 
worship an owl and have gay sex with one another. Yeah. I want to crush pussy. I don't like it that there's other fellas having sex with other fellas wearing robes deep somewhere in gay California. Yeah. That famous speech, he uh, was, he wasn't like a lot of people point that to like shadow government, which the CIA kind of is a fucking shadow government. They're like in control of the fucking government. And what's crazy is that that's why like Trump was, remember when Trump was like going ham on them? Yeah. Just like, I don't trust him. I don't believe in him. Anything they tell me, I don't listen to. I don't have time for it. I don't care about it. Okay. I'm tired of hearing this. CIA, what does that stand for? Cock ingesting assholes. Okay. That's what it means. People have told me to be in the CIA. You have to suck at least five guys on camera and a teenage boy too. Think about that. Now, I don't say that, but people have said to me, Donald, do you know the CIA is having sex with young men? Yeah. They definitely are. Yeah, what's all really interesting is the uh, the CIA connection. You know, like the Bay of Pigs thing is very fucking crazy. Yeah, and that's what, like, I mean, that was, like, the most public thing that Kennedy shot down. Yeah. You, know but, was, you know who was head of the CIA at that time? George Bush? Yep, George Bush Sr. Yeah. Which you're not supposed to run for president if you're... Well, it was actually um, Dooley's... Because there's like that Dulles International Airport. That guy yeah. was ahead of the CIA then. But JFK fired him. Yeah. So what Oliver Stone said in that documentary is like the problem was he fired him. But everybody that worked for the CIA really liked Dulles. So because he didn't fire everybody, he th- that guy still had a lot of influence and power within the CIA. So he's still like from. Yeah. That's basically what he illustrates and makes so much sense. They just killed JFK yeah, and Robert Kennedy yeah. because he was trying to fucking point out, like, say, like, yo, this this is who's actually running the country. I'm not running the country. You guys think I'm running the country? You voted for me. That's what I thought I was doing. But come to find out, these guys run the run everything. They're trying to take us into war with Cuba. They're trying to take us into war. Like, they had a fucking contingency plan for, like, the the main fear with attacking Cuba. So, at that time... When JFK was elected for president, he ran on a platform, and I know I said I wasn't going to go off, but this is interesting shit. It's not like us talking about fucking. JFK thought he was briefed that Russia had equal or more nuclear power than we did. Yeah. So he was like, he's he is often blamed for being like the Cold War guy. However, he was briefed wrong. We actually way outpowered Russia in nuclear weapons and China didn't have nuclear weapons. then. so the idea was like, okay, so we go to war with Cuba and the main threat is that Russia will nuke us. So if Russia does a tactical strike against us, we'll wipe them off the planet. And then preemptively because China would get involved, wipe them off the planet too. So we really were going to do like world domination. That was the CIA's agenda and Kennedy fucked that all up. So that's why they murked his ass. Yeah. 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 Wild shit. Which probably should happen now. Well, he says, so Stone says that we're just like severely uneducated about Russia and China. Like he did another documentary about Putin. Like basically they're not like the threat that, that we're, we perceive them as like we're fed that, which that's the problem with everything we've ever learned is that we're fed it. Like we don't have, 
I mean, we do now, but we, but it would be so hard. Like, imagine our dumbasses sitting down and trying to like learn the truth about Russia. Yeah. So he says, and this is just one guy. Can't believe him either. But him and and the people that work with him assert that Russia and China aren't really a threat to us. We make them out to be that way. So that way, if anything ever happens and we do have to wipe them off the map, then. But they were straight up planning to like Japan. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Russia. Like, that was the agenda. Oh, yeah. That was why we were going to get at it with Cuba. Ah. Was just to force that to happen. Right on. Which that, you know, might have been kind of sick for us now. Like, there would have been nobody else in the world doing anything. Yeah. We'd have been it. <laughs> There'd be no coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Oh, it's man. also very crazy. And, like, Oliver Stone hates Trump. But, dude, Trump is, like pretty much on the same shit JFK is yeah. on like almost every level. Yeah. So like a, a lot of people will be like JFK is the greatest president of all time, but fuck Donald Trump because JFK is like liberal, but they don't like liberal is shit. It's also like personality wise too. That's the thing. He's just a cocky fucking prick. Yeah. He's a shithead. Yeah. It's divisive, but it's divisive because of the media. Like yeah, again, yeah. I'm not pro Trump. Yeah. I'm not pro anybody. I think politics are retarded. Like the, it's fucked us all. Anyway, Point being is like they're they're very similar in like the way they deal with world power because JFK too was like a no bullshit with foreign countries guy, which was like what was crazy, and, and then that's how he got elected too because he was like you know there was Eisenhower and shit. Anyway, point is CIA is full of shit. This guy is a CIA guy, so henceforth we just have to keep that in mind that he's probably like when you're old. And you know you're going to die in a few years. I bet that all that shit that you did like, has to start hitting you. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's why there's a lot of deathbed confessions from CIA agents. Shit. Yeah. Because it, it's so hard to die with that on your conscience. Have you seen a deathbed confession of the guy that said that he killed, like, maybe it was JFK? Uh, I don't know. It's Maybe. It's wild. <laughs> But yeah, they got a lot of shit to get off their fucking chest because you get in, in these operations and like at the time you're indoctrinated too. So you're like, well, I'm 100% right about everything I'm doing. I could not be or I wouldn't be doing it. And then you're 80 years old and you're sitting around. It's just like, God damn, dude, why the fuck did I do that? And he got that's what that's what I'm getting at is that this guy's conscious has got to be fucked with him. So yeah. it makes a lot of sense that he's trying to like solve murders at his age. Yeah. All right. El Paso County is a Delaware-sized district on the eastern slope of the Rocky Mountains with a population of 575,000. It's basically Colorado Springs. A murder rate well below regional and national averages and outside the city, fewer than two dozen unsolved homicides going back to 1969. The injustice of any one unsolved murder probably looms larger in a community where murders are rare but the cold case unit informally established in the county sheriff's office on 2001 owes its existence less to the expressed values of an uncalloused electorate than to the zeal and friendship of three retired volunteers, Scott Fisher, Lou Smith, and of course, Charlie Hess. Tickled by their ages, now 61, 72, and 80 respectively, of an office manager in the sheriff's office teasingly named them the Apple Dumpling Gang after the bumbling dimwits in the 1975 Disney movie. Which is classic, like, you're you're in a very, like, right-wing police town. They don't give a fuck. Yeah. This is not what their concern is, so they're going to roast people who are trying to, like, solve everything that they fucked up on. Sure. Every Tuesday and Thursday morning, the gang meets for coffee out the old Haldberg pastry shop and cafe on South Day Home Street. Delicious. 
They then shuttle over to their office in a beige two-story building in the center of downtown Colorado Springs. Sheriff Terry Makeda's suite is across the hall. The rest of the brass are a few doors down, except for a poster-sized photo of Hess, Smith, and Fisher with a haul of yellowtail caught on a fishing trip in Mexico last summer. The cold case headquarters is all business. Gray metal chairs, gray metal desks, a computer, and metal shelves raked with unclosed case files in dozens of three-ring black notebooks. On the spine of each binder is a high school yearbook-style photograph of a murder victim. From the doorway, the array of faces look like a crowd on a balcony waiting for a play to begin. The godfather of the Apple Dumpling Gang was Sheriff Makita's predecessor, John Anderson. Blah, blah, sentimental wind. Man, those beers taste weird. Yeah, it's not good. You can have this other one too, though. I'm good. <laughs> you're not gonna. You're gonna leave an undrank beer. I don't know. We'll see when I get done with this one. <laughs> Probably won't. <laughs> Who held the top law enforcement post in the county from 1995 to 2003? Charlie Hess's daughter Candy managed Anderson's first campaign. During a strategy meeting at her house in 1994, Hess met Lou Smith who served with Anderson on the Colorado Springs Police Department in the 1970s and 80s. Smith was a legend in Colorado law enforcement circles, a veteran of more than 200 homicide investigations. He had a knack for solving tough cases that seemed to entail an almost mystical connection with victims. His dedication to the job was unrivaled. When Smith applied to the Colorado Springs Force in 1966, the department still had a five foot nine inch requirement. Smith measured half an inch short. He has to be retested the night before, and he persuaded his cousin, who was already on the force, to hammer him on the head with his nightstick. The next morning, he extended half an inch by the mother of all welts. So he got the position. Hilarious. Hess and Smith's friendship developed quickly over regular racquetball games and frequent meals. They each could improvise in a difficult circumstance. They each had quick senses of humor. They each appreciated the degree to which cases sometimes required tactics and methods that weren't always in or by the book. You look like somebody that played racquetball. Why? Because I got a ponytail right yeah, now? Yeah, you got yeah, the, the Adidas thing on. That's like probably good exercise, dude. It looks fun as fuck. I mean, I've like done it by myself in I the room. Handball. With a boing. We used to have them in high school, so I would just get in there and fucking zing them, yeah, zing and ding them, dude. Just yeah. smack the hell out of. But you get hit by that shit, dude. Oh, every, no matter I'm what, sure. <laughs> it wasn't that bad, but it still sucked. Yeah, I don't like getting hit by nothing. Lou and I are very much alike. Has said we both understand that if you want to see into the abyss, you got to walk near the edge. Wow. John Anderson ran for sheriff in 1994 with an ambitious agenda that included raising salaries professionalizing officer training, digitalizing communications, and enlisting more volunteers. Mindful of advances in fingerprint and DNA analysis, he also thought more could be done to revive stalled investigations. One unsolved homicide in particular was very disturbing to him and almost everyone else in the county. The case arose three years earlier in the northern part of the county known as Black Forest, when a 13-year-old girl named Heather Dawn Church disappeared from her family's house Heather was one of four kids, and on the night of September 17, 1991, she was at home babysitting for her five-year-old brother, Sage. There was little chance she'd run away, 
as she'd written on a Mormon church questionnaire that eventually made its way into a police file of of some 15 volumes. Her short-term goals were to be nicer to her brothers and get straight A's. She liked animals, dollhouses, swimming, biking, playing the violin, and tag. Her favorite passage of scripture was love one another. Two years after she vanished, her skull was found down a hillside off Rampart Range Road, some 30 miles from her house. More than 40 suspects had been considered, including Heather's father, Michael Church, who separated from his wife around six months before Heather's death. The case was televised on America's Most Wanted. Mm. Side note about Black Forest. There was like a haunted, super haunted house there. It's been like on all the ghost hunting shows, Unsolved Mysteries, all that shit. Me and shout out to my friend Phil Turner, I've talked about a bunch of times, decided to like fake doing a school project about it just to go out there to see if we could like talk. They do. We, they were like, this is another funny thing about Colorado is that like people think that rednecks are all in the South and shit. No. Dude, there's so many. This is like the country. These are the most redneck motherfuckers. And they were so stoked to just like show us around and tell us about all the spooky shit. The craziest thing about it was like, so we were there. They were there. They said that we like. We didn't see anything happen in the house, but they were like, what you need to do is walk like half a mile out into the woods and just be quiet. They didn't tell us anything why. So we did. We traipsed out there dead quiet. Dude, it sounded like a fucking dinner party was going on. Like there was like dishes clinging. It's like people were talking and shit. And we, we like ran back because one, we were scared and two to see if they were like fucking with us. And they were like out like the dad was like fucking with his four wheeler. The kid had gone to bed like they weren't fucking with us. That's crazy. And they had pictures. They had like a picture book of like uh, this fucking figure like coming down the stairs. It, it, it's like the most convincing ghost shit of all time to me. It was wild. It scared the fuck out of us. We got to do something on it. Yeah, we definitely could. We got to get Phil to visit and then we could talk about it yeah. or just like go visit and go back to that house. Oh, that would be sick. <laughs> the people were super cool, dude. They, I mean, they've let like all the TV shows in and shit, but... Yeah, we just like hit him up. I think we called him maybe and we're like, hey, we're working on a school project. Total lie. And we just want to come and like check it out and like super nice beer drinking, red blooded, rooting, tooting, shooting, four wheel driving motherfuckers. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I think Phil fingered a girl on the way back. Whoa. I'm pretty sure that happened. That's cool. He was always he was one of those dudes that would just like finger someone like right in front of you or like have a girl like we went to a basketball game at high school one time and a, it at the basketball game the girl was like jacking him through like in his pants. Hell like yeah. in his pants jacking him yeah. it, with like all of us around and shit. Yeah. And then like yeah, we used to have fucking band practice at this house. <laughs> and it was like this crazy family. I, I swear to God, like I, he sent me a thing where like the younger kid that was there just got sent to prison for a double murder. Uh, the girl that was fiddling with him that, that got us. And the house was crazy. I mean, there was just dog shit everywhere. It's where I talked about before. Where I threw up in that room and it was there for like years after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, we would just like be there. He'd be like laying down, just like fingering her and getting jacked off like in front of everybody. Down, it was crazy. It was wild. But yeah, that's high school shit, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> she was dating another one of our friends at the same time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember like at that basketball game, she was like definitely dating the guy. Like that's how, you know, I knew her. Just like, oh, you're dating my other friend. She was just like, God, it's so big. It's like right in front of everybody. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, salute to Philly. He's probably fucking turning bright red right now. Oh, uh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> probably. He listens. He's probably stressed yeah, out, like, yeah. shut the fuck up. <laughs> but, yeah, that house, Black Forest is wild, dude. I mean, it's just country as shit. Anyway, and Rampart Range is far away, so it's crazy that they someone abducted her and then took her more towards the city. That's wild shit. To dump the skull. Yeah. Dump the head. You think he drank the skull? Blended it up and shit. <laughs> <it> <laughs> I mean, he probably made, like, head cheese. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I like head cheese, man. Fuck yeah, dude. Pig face is like the business, dude. Yeah. That's where all the good meat at. Not all of it, but that's good ass meat, dude. Dude, the snoot. The cheeks and the snoot, dude. Those deep fried snoots are, that's probably the best. That is one of the best barbecue treats I've ever had. Yeah. They they smoked them and deep fried them like a wing. Oh my fucking Christ, dude. And it was just straight up pig noses, dude. Like it had the, like it was a pig nose. Dude, and that sauce was like all kind of like vinegary and sweet. Yeah, it banked. Perfect. It banked. I've never been able to replicate that. We went back to that place. They didn't have snoots. Remember that shit? Were you with us? Yeah, it was St. Louis. Yeah, yeah. When we went back, it was a bummer. The other shit was good too, but god damn, one of them fucking snoots. It It was was like, because it was like a big thick it was like almost like pork belly it was like biting into a pork rind yeah but then bacon in the middle yeah yeah, oh yeah. My God. it was <laughs> so good man Woo, get me hot. i'm so hungry right them, now dude. too they smoked and battered them fried them they didn't even they didn't need to be battered dude no, that's like the beauty of pig skin dude it fucking crisps up like that this shit is fucking Woo. Great, man a pig nose burrito oh jesus you know what sucks are uh chicharron burritos Oh, you yeah. ever had one? No, I'm not. A fan. It's just I'm not a fan. It's they're soft. They like, they fry yeah. them and then like cover them. It's so just like, just like squishy, fucking fat. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. great. It's not even like it's gross. It's just like a it's like a wet ass chip, dude. I'm not. <laughs> it sucks. I don't know who thought of that shit. Anyway, because like when I ordered one, I thought it was gonna be like crunchy. You feel me? Yeah. Like there's gonna be crunch in it. Nah, just wet. Nah, I don't like Awful. That. All right. When he first took office in January 1995, Anderson appointed Lou Smith captain of detectives and directed him to revisit the church case. I became a grunt, Smith told me last fall. I started putting together all the case files. I went through all the photos again. I made a timeline. I called the parents. I developed lead sheets for burglaries in the area. We looked at a lot of kids and checked alibis. When I was talking to one of the guys in the lab, he said, maybe we ought to send out the prints again. The best piece of forensic evidence the investigators had was fingerprints lifted off the frame of a window screen. The prints had been sent out to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and the FBI, but no match had turned up. At that time, the fingerprint data banks of each state and the FBI were not all interconnected. The so-called Integrated Automatic Fingerprint Identification System began in 1999, Limbiscuit Territory. Smith told the county fingerprint specialist Thomas Carney, to prepare 8 by 10 inch photographs of the fingerprints and then mailed them to 52 jurisdictions, each with its own set of computerized records. The effort hit pay dirt in March 1995. Colorado authorities learned the man who had handled the screen was a hazel-eyed white male, 6 foot 2 inches, 180 pounds with a southern accent, good teeth, and no visible deformities. <laughs> He's not retarded. He'd been convicted of motor vehicle theft and burglary in Louisiana. Further investigation disclosed he was living in a mobile home in Colorado Springs, about a half mile down the road from Heather Church's house. His name? Robert Charles Brown. County search and rescue personnel knocked on the door of his mobile home the morning after Heather vanished, but Brown said he knew nothing about the girl. 
FBI agents began canvassing the neighborhood later and had bypassed Brown's house because it was just outside the perimeter of their search. <laughs> Fucking idiots, man. Brown was brought in four years later after the murder for a videotaped interview. The El Paso County detectives were at pains to establish whether he'd ever been at the church house before Heather vanished. Ever done any construction there? Ever cleaned out a gutter or put up a screen? Ever dropped by for a visit? No, no, no. Never been there in his life, he said. We said, thank you so much, Smith recalled. Brown looked shocked when Detective Mark A. Finley, who was conducting the interview, dropped the bombshell that his fingerprints had been found at the scene. There must be some mistake, Brown insisted, that they should run the fingerprints again. There was no mistake, but other than the fingerprints, there was no physical evidence, which is why law enforcement officials were surprised when Brown changed his story and on May 24th, 1995, pled guilty to the murder of Heather Church. He told a placement officer that he had surprised the girl and killed her in her house by strangling her or breaking her neck. Judge Gilbert A. Martinez of the 4th Judicial District Court sentenced him to life without parole. Man, somebody likes to squeeze him. Yeah, can I see your beer opener? He probably did like a... Probably was like trying Steven Seagal shit, you feel me? Maybe. Somebody likes to squeeze him or something, man. We know somebody likes to squeeze him. Is that true? Oh, yeah. They also... Do tell. I've also been a pitman at a couple different places. Pitman? Yeah. Like barbecue? Yeah. Mosh pit? Yeah. Dish pit? <laughs> what are you talking about, bro? Armpit? <laughs> you? Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, yeah, you know who I know about. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not getting it. It's not ringing. Somebody in. likes to squeeze them. A squeezer? A squeezer, man. <laughs> Just a... Oh, yeah, we do know a squeezer. <laughs> the guy I'm talking about looked me dead in my eyes one time and had somebody in a bow and arrow choking class. Yeah. He goes, I can feel his heart slowing down. And I was like, well, you should probably let him go. Yeah. And he was like, hold on. And I was like, just let him go, man. Yeah. He was like, man, if it comes between me trying to break this up and... Him getting mad, I'm just gonna let him, yeah. Let I'm him just go. gonna let that guy die. Let him have it. Yeah, it's a, you signed. You let waiver. him go right before the guy passed. Signed a waiver. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Not for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That does. Uh, he does like to squeeze. It took me a minute, dude. <laughs> Fucking, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I think he was dodging the death penalty. Smith told me. We'd sent the detective down to his hometown of Louisiana to do a background check. It turned out there was a girl who had lived next to him who was missing and a girl who lived on the other side of him who was found murdered. The cases had never been solved. I don't think he wanted us looking into his past any more than we already had. During his time as captain, Smith created a new format for organizing case files. All interview reports, crime scene photographs, and lead sheets were bundled into notebooks. Timelines were drawn up. Every name was indexed and cross-referenced. The process of building the book enabled new detectives to get up to date quickly on a particular case and helped detectives already involved see patterns that might otherwise be obscured in the welter of details. Makes complete sense. I feel like that should have been done in the fucking 1940s, but whatever. 
Smith had wanted to organize the backlog of cold cases in similar fashion, but he retired in 1996 to help his wife, Barbara, who was suffering from cancer. During a period of remission before she died in 2004, Smith was asked by the district attorney in Boulder County to help investigate the murder of John Benet Ramsey, which we solved. It was definitely her brother. Yep. Smashed her with a flashlight because she ate his pineapple. Easy work. When he was done with that work, he volunteered his services to the sheriff's office, eager to organize the county's unsolved murder file. Charlie Hess had a similar hankering. And so, in the spring of 2001, the two racquetball partners found themselves batting around 15 unsolved homicides going back more than 30 years. They'd been working about two months when John Anderson came by with another volunteer, Scott Fisher, freshly retired from his job as publisher of the Colorado Springs Gazette. Fisher had no formal law enforcement background, but in his early 20s, he photographed homicide crime scenes for the local sheriff's office in New Mexico, and he was handy with a computer. After seven months with Hess and Smith, Fisher was inspired to enroll in the county's reserve officer training academy. Stop fiddling with him, dude. That drives me insane. Fiddle, fiddle, fiddle. Within a couple of years, virtually all the cold cases of El Paso County were on a computer on disks that could be searched in an instant. In late April 2002, Hess, Smith, and Fisher were sitting over coffee at the Heidelberg wondering what to do next. Hess turned to Smith. Have you ever worked a case where you thought the guy was a serial killer? You know, I think I have. Who? Robert Brown. You think I might write to him? Hess asked. Thus began a relationship in that in its ebb and flow, its diplomatic invasions, its deepening air of trust and collaboration resembled a sort of marriage. At the outset, Hess was certain of little but his approach. The initial overture was almost always pro forma. You put your cards on the table, you tell the person who you are, what your background is, what you want, and end up with some <coughs> subjunctive thing like, perhaps we can be of mutual benefit to each other. If he got a reply, he would improvise from there. From cold case files, Hess learned that Brown, born October 31st, 1952. Ah! I remember Halloween. They'd catch our decades ding. <laughs> <laughs> Soaking on decades ding. Doing murders in a string. I remember Halloween. In a trailer, anything goes. Squeeze them from head to toe. <laughs> I remember Halloween. Yeah. It's crazy to be a serial killer born on Halloween. Makes sense. All Hallows Beeve. Oh man, I love a Hallows Beeve. He was the youngest of nine kids. He was raised in Quashita, Louisiana, where his father, Ronald, worked as a deputy sheriff in the Red River Parish Sheriff's Office. Depression, depression apparently ran on his mother's side. Brown's maternal grandfather committed suicide by throwing himself into a cistern with a weighted chain around his neck. Despite his intelligence, later IQ tests would put him in the borderline genius rage. But Brown's grades were unremarkable. Is he me? Or me? You got a high IQ? That's what they said. Who's they? The school. They made, it, they made me do an IQ test when I was in yeah. I believe it. High. My grades are bad. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I was especially Definitely. Shit. <laughs> there was no obvious explanation for what would later seem as this fathomless 
antipathy towards people, women especially. I get it. Man, somebody make it a grilled cheese. Yeah, Brian is. It, it, it kind of smells like popcorn. What are you cooking, Brian? Damn, you nailed it. A grilled cheese. I'm fat fuck, man. Fuck, dude. I thought popcorn. Wow. I don't know what craft melted smells like. I know what bread toast is <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> In 1969, three years before his 17th birthday, Brown dropped out of high school and joined the Army. Oh, big fucking surprise, dude. Every goddamn time. It's always the same shit, dude. People who are in the Army. They kill people. And they also lie a bunch. (laughs) That's the same people. That's the craziest thing, man. God damn it, dude. I see where you're going with that, too. He did two tours in Vietnam and one in Korea before he was dishonorably discharged for drug use in 1976. He worked a miscellany of jobs at a paper company and a wholesale business in Louisiana. He delivered flowers in Texas. He worked the counter of a quick stop in Colorado Springs in 1987. He was married five fucking times. All of his wives were slight, small bone women, none of them much more than five feet tall, and all of them were still alive. His fifth wife told detectives Brown confided in her that he hated women and cops. Yeah, me too, man. <laughs> I wonder how many kids he's got. His fourth wife told reporters from the Colorado Springs Gazette that Brown had once put a pistol to her head and pulled the trigger. When nothing happened, he came. <laughs> and when nothing happened, asked her to shoot him. Ah. She should have. His third wife said Brown beat her because she forgot to put a spoon in the gravy. Yeah, dude. Yeah, well, don't that's do a that. big deal. That's pretty. Yeah. How are you supposed to get the gravy out of a bowl? Now, if yeah. it's in a gravy boat, you can pour it. But if the gravy's in a bowl, also, it's probably white gravy, which sucks. Well, I'm talking about that, man. Don't be bitching about equal rights. You can't even put a fucking spoon in the <laughs> gravy. <laughs> He's the devil's right hand man, she said. Call me when you pull the switch. Brown's second oh, wife yeah. was Vietnamese and gave birth to his only child, his son. Dude, can you imagine. Fighting in Vietnam and then yeah. marrying in America a Vietnamese woman. Well, I could imagine it if I killed a bunch of people in Vietnam and it reminded me of the people I killed and I got to fuck them because of that got me hot because I would be a piece of shit. He was probably buying Vietnamese pussy, too. That's what they were up to, definitely. Yeah. They did some crazy. The Oh, yeah. You saw what happened to Richard Ramirez, dude. His yeah. fucking big cousin's photo book got him horned. Well, up. he did. Did you ever see, like, there's a documentary I watched about Vietnam where the hookers would put razor blades up inside their pussies. Yeah. And the guys would fuck them and it would slice them. Oh, my God. Can you imagine, dude? Yeah. Going from the best to the worst. Yeah. And it would take a second. Just like, oh, God. The Kong slicing the dome, man. Yeah. Wild. Dude, you know what I need to do? This is a hard move. Yeah. Fuck your woman when they got a fever. Hmm. Cause it's gonna I be feel a, like it would be cool if A they warmer had, beaver Yeah yeah But it would also be cool If you did that And then put a couple Pop rocks in their pussy too The full package Yeah I mean definitely Well they're gonna get a UTI Yeah she'll get a UTI But <laughs> I feel like if you're Prepared for it Yeah You know it's like You well, got a douche Just ready to go Yeah I mean Which is douches Are very bad Yeah But they're not as bad As pop rocks Pop rocks So yeah. if you can get that out Sure It'd be fine But if you wanna Step it up And pleasure your man Pop rock pussy. Put some pop rocks in your can. <laughs> fever pussy, though. Yeah. It's got to be incredible. Because, dude, what if it's a 103 degree fever? Now, 
Your Ooh. wife's not going to want it when she feels that awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, dude, that's so warm, bro. It's tight. Tight and warm. And creamy. That's so warm, bro. Tight, warm, and creamy, man. That's a, the dream. The warmth. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, you, we're talking about, like, a, you know, five-degree uptick. Yeah, yeah. Well, the best would be uh, ice cube blowjob and then fever pussy. So it's kind of like going from the hot tub to the pool, <laughs> pool yeah. to the hot tub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Woo! <laughs> Wake you right up. God. If we would have had that today, we wouldn't have to have no energy drink. Yeah. Cold showers rock, dude. I take them all the fucking yeah, time. I'll I take them in the man. night, bro. I love them. You, go to, you sleep so good afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But also, like, it's that uh, feeling of fight or flight and where you... Oh, yeah, cranks your adrenaline. Right, cranks your sure. adrenaline shit, and then you're like, oh, man, I survived, and then you're like, I can sleep great tonight. Yeah, yeah. you got to fight it in your body. Like, you know, you got to breathe because when that cold water hits you, it's like. <laughs> also helps you adapt to, like, shitty situations pretty quick. Yeah. I have yeah. mental effects. I crank them, like, three oh, times yeah. a week, dude. I do about three times, yeah. yeah. Highly recommend it. All right. So he married a fucking wink the time to get to you. Makes your testosterone you give it best, shoot through the roof, You give too. it best through the time, is. First marriage ended in divorce after three years. Brown's criminal record was not extraordinary. There was a warrant for his arrest in 1981 for stealing a church bell. Bong. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's like definitely some fucking rebellious shit. He helped with Archie Goat's album and shit. <laughs> <laughs> in 1986, he stole a Ford truck. There were police reports linking him to cruelty to animal incidents, drug use, burglaries, and arson. Of much interest to Hess was that Robert Brown had already exchanged some letters with El Paso authorities. A couple of days after the fifth anniversary of his arrest, he sent a cryptic four-line poem to the 4th Judicial District Attorney in Colorado Springs. You ready for this poetry? Let's get it. In the murky placid depths beneath the cool caressing mire lie seven golden opportunities. Missed opportunities? Lovingly, Robert Brown. Hmm. Deep, dude. It's pretty good. Genius level IQ. Yeah. Detective Finley took up the task of replying to the letter a week later. I have tried to anticipate what you are wanting to do, and I believe I have a general idea of at least some of the things that you refer to in your letter. Certainly, I'm willing to come speak with you if that is what you want. I will tell you up front, no other agencies are interested unless you are willing to provide bona fide information that will be of assistance to them. I took the liberty of writing this letter rather than make a visit to access exactly what it is you want to do. It would be a waste of time to show up and speak in rhymes. You poem writing fruit. I hate that. Poetry. Poetry. Haikus, man. Leave it to the Japanese to fuck something up. You like a baiku, though. I like a baiku. It's <laughs> my favorite Dragon Ball Z character. <laughs> baiku. Ah! A week later, Brown sent Finley more doggerel. Four AABB rhyme scheme stanzas saying in a roundabout fashion that the seven sacred virgins were buried in El Paso County and were <laughs> therefore county cases. With the verse was a hand-drawn map outlining nine states, Washington, California, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. There was a number on each state. Colorado had nine. Louisiana had 17. 
A note included read, the score is you, one. The other team, 48. Are you willing to settle for this? You have the information to make the score 8 to 48. Somewhat better, but you seem to not have the insight or ambition to score. In addition, if you were to drive to the end zone in a white Trans Am, the score could be 9 to 48. (laughs) (laughs) I love the Trans Am. Yeah, of course, dude. That would complete your home court sphere. Do you wish to retire into obscurity? Or would you like to live a life of notoriety and wealth? Let's see if you have the insight, ambition, and drive to be somebody. Again, you have your information. Do not contact me. Yeah, this is a very... uh you know, anytime it's like a game like this, is it cock tease? Dork, them? dork, dork. Yeah, some cock tease shit. It's definitely like whenever a girl's like trying to tease you up and you're like, okay, we've done this. Yeah, I smell rape. Yeah. <laughs> Are you ready? Are you ready? Yeah. But, uh, you know, they start doing that kind of shit. But it's like they, they have the opportunity to relive the investigation. Yeah. So that's what they're trying to do. They're oh, trying yeah. to be like, well, then we'll let- Oh, yeah. Maybe I can tell you where the body's at if you take me kind of shit. Perhaps I might go if you could uh, permit the flow. If a man of your stature was to permit me to go and ramble around where the bodies lie, I could give you clues to unfurl within the deepest webs of atrocity. Those are cradle filters. Atrocity. dude. To Hess, Brown's cryptic cat and mouse communiques clearly seemed intended to taunt the investigators who put him away for life. As he told me one day last fall. My general feeling was that Robert Brown wrote these goofy poems because he had been incarcerated for five years and he was angry and he wanted to get the guys who put him in jail. If nothing else, Finley's letter demonstrated the in-your-face approach wouldn't work. Hess took the opposite tack. Scott Fisher typed up Hess' handwritten draft. It was dated May 9th, 2002. <clears throat> Dear Mr. Brown, my name is Charlie Hess, and I work as a volunteer at the El Paso County Sheriff's Office, mostly working on cold murder cases. My background is that I was a special agent in the FBI and the CIA, agent in Vietnam, and ultimately retired as a polygraph examiner with the San Diego Police Department. In my endeavors there, I had occasion to review certain details of your case. I must say I was very intrigued by the correspondence you directed to the district attorney's office here, subsequent to your incarceration. The information you alluded to brings to mind previous high-profile matters I handled, and I am wondering if you feel it in your interest to grant me an interview. It has been my experience that intelligent, unique individuals oftentimes are in a position to illuminate matters that could never come to light via any other avenue. Hoping you feel that a contact would be of mutual value, I remain. Sincerely, Charles J. Hess. Now he's trying to build him up. 
Yeah, he, he he took the same route. Yeah. Smart and smart. Two yeah. intellectuals batting back and forth. Well, also. Within the racquetball arena. Also, it's like a good tactic because he's trying to let him know, I think you're smart, man. I think that you could probably really help me out here. Yeah. You know, you're an interesting person. You're a cool guy. Like that kind of You shit. care for a volley of the brawl of rackets. No, man. <laughs> to the amazement of the detectives in the sheriff's office, he included his home address. That is very crazy. It was standard part of his method for cultivating rapport. He'd served. Would the ball come back? I knew that racquetball shit was going to tie into that, dude. You article writing motherfucker. Every time. They can't resist. They brought up racquetball three times. The ergo I knew, and you heard me say it, America, he was going to say something about racquetball. Yeah, Fucking knew it. Maybe that's, why, that's how we get good at our jobs, man. We tell them we're going to have meetings every morning. Like we're going to do debriefing meetings. Yeah. Racquetball. And it makes us real good at our job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more like a snacketball type of guy. Oh, I love a snacketball. There's one for all the horny fellas. Have we talked about that on here yet? Oh no, yeah. Uh, a gentle maybe. A gentleman had reached out wanting our underwear. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we talked about that, but did we talk about the YouTube thing where there's thirteen thousand horny men watching oh, yeah. us? A compilation of us burping and farting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they love it. Love it. I did send out my first pair. I think the gentleman received them today. The gentleman. He told you you got them. Nah, they're supposed to be there ah, today. Ah, the gentleman will crack within. He promises that he'll send me a video of him snacking them. Which I, yeah. Nice. Right. And, you know, this is a tidbit of information. Maybe you're watching. Before I shipped them off, man, I was out in the parking lot of the UPS. I just <laughs> unbuckled my pants and took the underwear and crammed them up my ass, man. Just cra- I mean, like, just fuck it. I'm going to pee on that note, dude. Crammed it up my ass. I put them in a sandwich bag and then went in and bought some, like, rap shit and fucking <laughs> shipped them off, man. And I really hope that, you know, it was a pretty good deal. I, fa- I found out that, like, uh, worn underwear, farty underwear, workout underwear, all those kind of things, they can go up to, like, 300 bucks, 400 500 depending on your whatever. I had to deal $70, $70, so... You know, anybody out there that wants some of my underwear, I'll cut you a deal, man. I'm not trying to make any money. I mean, I need a little bit to help me out, you know, but just knowing that people are out there coming to me is what I need. Builds up my shit, man. Builds up my my sexual depravity rapport with my wife. I love that. I need to, I need to know that people are shooting ropes and squirting water. I know that Chris got some dirty ass. Under- I know Chris got some nasty ass underwear. Hey, I don't ever wear underwear, but the underwear I do own is from years ago. And I'll pop that on. And I'll send it to you for a small fee. Hit me up. Lloyd have mercy. 666 on Instagram. Hit up Chris, man. Maybe Chris will sell you some underwear. We're going to need it. We live a life of servitude. And that, pay sh- that don't pay shit, but. We'll be sex workers, man. <laughs> I uh, if that's your type of thing, my minimum is three hundred bucks. Three hundred bucks for like, I, I got a, like a hierarchy of underwear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a minimum though. Minimum, and and what three hundred bucks will get you 
is a newer pair of my underwear. No, no, no. It's got to be older. They look the No, no. That, that's 300 Oh. 300 bucks. I'll take a newer pair of my underwear. I'll wear them all day. And I'll do an upper body workout. Yeah. In them. Now. And that's 300 That's a good deal. Here's the thing, dude. Mm-hmm. People buy underwear for $300 of just a guy that sells underwear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, uh, celebrity is not the word, but we're like, uh, we're a, we, I mean, we're like a, we're a, a very low level online celebrity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, a mid tier fetish. Low level, high tier. This is what guys like. Yeah. Now, let me say this 300 bucks, new pair of underwear. I'll do a, I'll wear them all day and do an upper body workout. Okay. Okay. 500 bucks, I'll take one of my most favorite pairs of older underwear. I'll squat in them or deadlift in them. Now, I'll tell you this. Squatting, you got about a 30% chance that I might crap a little bit in them. Yeah. Yeah. You do. 600 bucks, I'll do a heavy deadlift session. I'll tell you this. A lot of times... When I deadlift 600 plus, I can feel my butthole uh, above my butthole producing a hemorrhoid. Now, when that happens, poop comes out. Yeah. Just a little, like, at least my butthole comes out with some fecal matter and kisses the underwear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 500 bucks, bro. Gotcha. So, that's my range. If you're that type of freak, I'm not a, you know, you might short yourself. No, no, I don't short myself, but... I, uh, you know, I like really the pay, like I'm going to, I want some money, but you, you're just the uglier version of me. No, no, no. I get hit on way more by dudes than you do. You don't know that. Yeah, I do. You don't know that. How many dudes want to fuck you? You know about right now. God damn, dude. If I, should I do, should we do a poll? Yeah. Cause you're, you're, here's the the other thing too, is you're like open to it. Yeah. I'm to fucking them. Not to fucking them, but to like be there for them. Yeah, I'm, I want to make sure that they come. I'm the yeah, <laughs> I'm the obtuse goose, dude. I don't want any part yeah, of that. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. Now for a thousand bucks, I'll send you a nickels to bottle my gum. <laughs> I'll put it up my ass and fart it out too. For six hundred bucks, I'll put my dick through my underwear and fuck. Okay, but they don't want to smell vagina. Yeah, but they'll get sex dick smell. Sex dick, yeah. Sex dick is. <laughs> it is kind of the. Like, or like, I could do like I, you know, me and Buddy have talked several times. Our thing, is, like we, it's we have a we discussed this after we had been doing it. But what I like to do is have sex, not wash. Yeah, and then the next day have sex stick all day. So As a I reminder, pull it out the pee. I, I like smell. your reminder, man. Yeah. I get the smell. I like your reminder of me, like oh, I don't know what I did, but so that underwear you could get for six. Yeah, yeah. For yeah, seven, yeah. I'll deadlift in that underwear. Sick man. Yeah. I'm high. I'm I'm classy. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I'm a fancy guy. I don't know. Man. I do a lot of. Uh, I do a lot of shit that most motherfuckers can't do. Well, For a thousand bucks, I'll go grapple at him. 
Oh, for 300, here's the thing with 300, though, man, like, I hung out with y'all today. Like, I didn't, you didn't have to do anything, and you smell like an ass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you always try to tell me I stink. I don't you smell stink, like dude. a bathroom, dude. <laughs> <laughs> when I fart. But no, no, no. I don't smell like a bathroom, bro. You, you smell like a toilet. That's crazy. And then when you <laughs> fucking crazy. fart, you smell like a toilet with shit in it. I smell like a toilet, bro. <laughs> yeah, do. I don't smell like a toilet. You know what you need to do when you start wiping that ass of yours? Yeah. Put a little brood on the toilet paper. Uh, you know, get some I mean, dude, my main dump happens at my house. I've yeah. got a bidet. I spray water in my ass. Yeah, but it's not working, And then, man. shut up. <laughs> then I wet wipe it, dude. Yeah. And then I put lotion on my butthole. You know what you should do? You should put a bowl in the toilet, dude, and let it catch the bidet water and sell that. <laughs> <laughs> For $2,000, you can you can't come to my house, but we can... I'll, I'll get another bidet and we can go somewhere and you can drink the bidet water. <laughs> Dude, we got to do dinner dates with gay guys where they have to pay for it. Oh, they have to pay for the meal. They gotta th- that's going too far, to bro. Out. You can do it. I think my wife would be bummed for it, dude. <laughs> she, would, she would laugh, man. She would think it's funny. She would laugh, but then there would be too many jokes. But then what What happens is like 6000 bucks, and the guy's got to suck your dick. No, that's not enough. 6000 bucks for a dick Not sign? enough, man. <laughs> not enough, man, I won't ever put myself in any kind of predicament if like that. If a guy, <laughs> if a fella is going to suck my dick. Yeah. I have to. It, I have to get enough money where I can level up in life. Yeah, like six thousand bucks is gonna. That's nothing. It's gonna be gone. Well, what do you, what is a level up? I mean, I would have to be able to like invest in a business. A hundred thousand. I would definitely do it for a hundred thousand. I'd probably do it for fifty. Fifty. Nobody's sucking your dick for fifty thousand. No, you're probably right. I'm just somebody, somebody might. You know, now if they do, they don't know about us yet, but they might. Yeah, great. I'm in. That would be crazy. My dick would be so soft. Or like, Fuck. That's what sucks. Well, you yeah. had to cram. You'd have to hit more Viagra than you've ever hit. Watch porn. Start jacking off. And then. Yeah. Oh, I can't come to that. Is that a caveat? What? Yeah, I mean, they got to. Yeah, 50,000 bucks. They want the spunk. Man. Uh, oh, man. That's hard to do, bro. Yeah. Can my wife tag team? Can she get me to the point and then I blast in their mouth? Oh, they got to taste her and you, though. That's the thing. They don't want just that. the mouth. You can't taste mouth. Oh, I got like, can you. they give me head back and forth? <laughs> this is pretty wild, man. This is crazy. I did. I didn't want to go off topic, but this is wild off. <laughs> yeah, because here's the thing, man. I was like, I'm down to do all this shit, but I don't want to do 10.99 to pay taxes in and all that shit. You're not gonna have to. Yeah, and I don't think for sex work, yeah, you filed 10.99. No, I think no, that's no. why the government hates it. Well, the thing is, is like on uh, OnlyFans, you do. We're not doing OnlyFans. Bro. I know. I know. Yeah. I know. But on OnlyFans, you do. Sure. And it also comes on your background, dude. Yeah, we're not doing OnlyFans. Yeah, though. I'm not either, man. I'm, not I'm sure I could crank on OnlyFans, dude. Oh, fuck yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, you just have us eating Sloppy Joes and let it drip. <laughs> <laughs> That's why our food videos probably got so many views, dude. I know, man. Because they like again. to watch us munch. We got to. Here's how we got I don't want to sell myself like no, that. No, no, no. Here's what we got to do, though. We got to go. We got to start going to local restaurants and do mukbangs to where they're like, oh, they're getting the name out. I mean, gay so dudes will visit. Bunch of big fat like, fruits. I'm eating at the same place these guys made me come in this video. You know, <laughs> can I lick the plate? Yeah. Okay. Well, moving on. 
keep it rolling so everyone doesn't get lost in the sauce. <clears throat> Law enforcement was the last thing Charlie Hess expected to divert him from a life of coaching football and showing anglers where to cast. He was an only child born in 1927 to Charles and Beatrice Hess in Cicero, Illinois. Oh, yeah, we've been there. A lot. It's a crazy place. I mean, it's just like a shitty part of Chicago. Yeah, but remember when we were out there working and we heard a bunch of gunshots and shit? Yeah, yeah. That was wild. Before Charles Sr. went to work as a tailor, he played briefly on the semi-pro team that eventually became the Chicago Bears. That's old, motherfucker, dude. Yeah. Beatrice was a seamstress who, during the Depression, helped make ends meet by sewing lingerie for rich people in Chicago. When Hess was 15, his parents invested all their savings in a rundown resort on Fish Trap Lake, about four miles outside the north-central Wisconsin town of Boulder Junction. Hess expected he would manage the resort when his parents retired, but at the urging of his father... After 18 months stint as a cook in the Navy, he used the GI Bill for a college education. At Superior <laughs> State College, Hess shared a coal-heated house with three military veterans. One of his roommates, Leonard Ojala, first noticed the driven quality that Hess would later bring to his work at the FBI and the CIA. When Hess was always getting into fights with his football teammates, Charlie... Has always wanted to prove something, Ojala told me. We Finns have an expression called Sisu, which is a kind of southern stubborn determination to continue in spite of overwhelming odds. I think some of it rubbed off on Charlie. He'll deny it, of course. So this guy's Finnish, and he's saying that his Finnish stubbornness rubbed off on his friend. Yeah. Has asked Ojala if he thought he would make a good husband for his college sweetheart, Joanne, and then promptly ignored his device advice and tied the knot at the end of his sophomore year. Chris, the first of his two daughters, was born in 1949. Candy followed in 1951. Two stripper names. Yeah. In 1952, lured by a $6,200 salary. God, dude. He landed a position as a special agent for the FBI. But that was so much money back then. That's yeah. crazy. That's like a great job. And now. Yeah. 6200 bucks. I hate the planet, dude. Oh, yeah. Money is the worst thing. It doesn't even, it doesn't even have any value. It's the worst yeah, that's thing. Crazy it just ruins it. you, bro. Like, yeah. the stress of being broke is the worst. I hadn't been like this for a long time. It sucks so bad. Yeah, that's like I told you before, man. It's like, I drive, this job, the one that we're working is not a, you ain't going to make no money at it, man. It, it, and they make yeah, sure that's you not know, the point, they don't, they, don't, like, they don't really want you to help. They want high turnover. Yeah. Because they don't want help. People people don't want to really invest in people who are helping people because you make more money. Sure. If you're making the world a better place. You're not making money. Yeah. Because you're losing crazy, clients, You know, which is crazy. It does suck. It's like, oh, you're investing time into people and trying to get them to build their life up and do, make it make everything better so that they go on and do something good. Maybe they make a bunch of money and they hand it down. No, that's not how it works. No, what they want is more chaotic children. To, yeah, yeah, I get it. It sucks. The world sucks. Yeah. It's a bad place. Yep. I'm tired of it. You know. But, shit, I wish I had, would have had the job I have now when I was 21. Yeah. Single. Yeah. 
I get a lot of pussy. <laughs> I also get a lot of dudes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, that salary. He got a position as a special agent for the FBI. Hess, just shy of his 25th birthday, was assigned initially to San Antonio. He learned Spanish at the FBI Language Academy and was later posted to El Paso and then Alpine, Texas, beside Big Bend National Park. He showed a flair for cultivating informants on both sides of the border. Within six months to the start of his stint in San Antonio, he had 20 people passing him tips. Almost everything he learned about getting people to talk to him, he credits to the intuitive approach of the Texas sheriffs he met on his rounds. Hess put in 10 years the Bureau, and then three as a city manager of National City, just south of San Diego. But with his 40th birthday looming and his marriage getting rocky, he was restless and ready for an adventure. He ran into an old classmate from the FBI Academy who had been hired by the U.S. Agency for International Development, you said, to teach police work to the South Vietnamese. Hess was hired by USAID, and late in the spring of 1967, he flew to Vietnam as a Foreign Service Officer of the State Department. I don't think I was in favor of the Vietnam War ideology as much as I just wanted to find out what was going on over there, he told me. One day in the summer of 1967, Hess went on an inspection tour in a plane with a CIA paramilitary officer named Robert Wall, who outlined a joint American-South Vietnamese program that the CIA was organizing to neutralize the Vietnam political coteries. Wall offered Hess a job as a deputy coordinator of the Phoenix program. The Phoenix program remains as controversial today as it was during the war. Depictions of it range from a flawed but valuable intelligence and counterinsurgency operative to a lawless, Terror for Terror assassination program that paved the way for some of the more dubious tactic in the United States' current war on terror. Hess supervised Phoenix operations in three corps. A group of 11 provinces compromising 53 districts, Wall noted in 1968 report that Hess actually pioneered the investigative aspects of the program and the success he has achieved led to the implementation of his concepts in any other corpse areas. When I pressed him on the issue, Hess said he had not participated in or witnessed the more brutal interrogation practices that were aired in congressional hearings in the 1970s, when United States soldiers gave accounts of prisoners being thrown out of helicopters or rung up by electric shocks from hand-cranked field telephones, or Pierced through the eardrums by sharpened bamboo dowels. Yeah, okay. So you invented that, implemented it, and then you weren't involved. That's the ghost, dude. He was out there fucking popping eardrums with bamboo sticks. I don't like that, man. Shocking him. Have you, ever seen, some, have you ever seen somebody bust an eardrum? I've busted an eardrum. Dude. Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember when I got stuck on the mat and it, blah, oh, it sucks. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's one of the worst things. I've seen somebody shove their finger in there too far and bust it. Ooh, <laughs> they gave and me their, a chill. And jaw and their eye went like that when they did it. Like popping, it's awful, dude. Yeah. You get dizzy. I think about Shawshank Redemption where he's like, "You gotta suck my dick," and he's like, 
He's like, and if you don't, I'm gonna shove a screwdriver through. He's like, yeah, go. He's like, yeah, go ahead, because you know what's gonna happen is my jaw's gonna tense up and bite your dick off. Yeah, like, that's true. Very true. You ever gone too far with a Q-tip and you just go? Yeah, yeah, it gets yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hess, who has a hat stitch with the message Vietnam. If you weren't there, shut up. And again, he wasn't in the military. He was in. T- he was fucking torturing <laughs> Vietnamese, dude, yeah, yeah, for the CIA. Yeah. That's the facts. Also made a point of telling me he had no objection in principle to such techniques during wartime. He says, in a war, this is strictly my opinion, you do whatever is necessary to save American lives. The only people who know if it's appropriate are the people who are doing it at the time. So you tortured him. Yeah, you, you're you like the same as the dude you're interviewing, basically. Within six months or so, around February 1968, Hess knew the program he had helped design was working poorly. Essentially, we did not understand the Vietnamese culture, he told me. Our tactics were based on what had, on what we had accomplished with informants in the West, especially in Europe during World War II. We were too stupid and ignorant and misinformed to understand in Vietnamese culture it is okay to be a traitor and leave your village, but it was not okay to be a traitor and go back and be a mole. After Vietnam, Hess went back to school to begin a new career as a polygraph examiner. His marriage was coming to an end when he met his second wife, Joe Marino, on a blind date in 1978. He had his first quadruple bypass that year and second 19 years later. And then in 1984, the G-Man escaped to the Baja Peninsula. For six years, he and Joe, the daughter of a commercial fisherman, lived 400 miles south of the United States border on the wild beaches of Bahia de Los Angeles. They built a cabin. They ate what they could catch. Truck in every three months or so or tender ashore on a small boat. They had no mail, no phone, not even legal standing in the country, just the beauty of arid mountains, dawn light, and sunset. The neon blue of Dorado flashing in the turquoise sea. They could have stayed forever had Joe not begun to worry how they would manage getting old. So basically this guy's a fucking war criminal, and he ran off to Mexico. They returned to the States in the fall of 1991. Just a couple of months later, in the early hours of Christmas Eve 1991, Hess was staying in Cedar City, Utah with Joe when the phone rang. Hess's son-in-law, Stephen Vaught Sr., the husband of his youngest daughter, Candy, had been shot in interrupting a burglary at his brother's house in a rural area of El Paso County, 15 miles (coughs) south of downtown Colorado Springs. He slumped on the porch and bled to death in Candy's arms. Hess and his wife drove all afternoon and arrived in Colorado Springs on Christmas Day. The intruders were three 17-year-olds said to be members of the Four Corner Hustlers gang. Ooh, Tight. One teenager was caught almost immediately, having injured himself on a barbed wire fence while trying to flee. The two others turned themselves in on Christmas Day, accompanied by their parents. They were charged as adults. Hess intended to remain remain in Colorado Springs as long as Candy needed him. He and Joe built an apartment attached (coughs) to Candy's house. 
They put a wrought iron fence around her yard and bought a male Rottweiler named Zeppelin whose welcoming bark when Candy pulled into the driveway told her no one was inside wanting to harm her. In 2005, Candy remarried and moved out of the state. Her father, with work to do, stayed on. A week after Hess's first letter to Robert Brown, a handwritten reply dated May 16, 2002, arrived in his mailbox. Hello, Charles J. Hess. A face-to-face interview at this time is not acceptable. However, I may be willing to correspond on matters that interest you. What specifically were you intrigued by? What high-profile matters were brought to mind? What matters would you like to be illuminated? My perception, accurate or distorted, may have a great bearing on the amount of and what I share. Oh, God. Till then, Robert Brown. Hess and Fisher and Smith were all surprised how quickly Brown had answered. What they didn't learn until later that day was four days before Hess's letter to Brown, Brown, after a two-year hiatus, had tried to resume his correspondence with Detective Mark Finley, who was no longer with the sheriff's office. Brown had possessed a hypothetical question. If I were to identify a murder which occurred in El Paso County and then pled guilty to this murder in exchange for a sentence of death, How long would it take for the execution to take place? I would appreciate answers by mail, no visits. Hess saw the coincidence as another example of Lou Smith's maxim that you never know what will happen when you give the pot a stir. Now he had to follow up. Hess wrote his second letter by hand on a yellow legal pad in June. Scott Fisher typed it up. Dear Mr. Brown, thank you for answering my letter. I would have responded sooner. But I was out of town. I note that you too were in Vietnam. I directed the CIA Phoenix program in three corps. <coughs> I spent most of my time in Coochie. Literally, Coochie. Uh-huh. I spend most of my time in Coochie. I wish. Yeah, I'd like to do that. If there's 24 hours in a day and I could spend, oh, 22 of it in pussy. That means you're sleeping. We got four hours sure. of dry Just sleep and four hours of wet sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you get that old fucking hard dick in the morning and you got the pee bone, man. Yeah, I can keep it in there for sure. Oh, yeah. It would, it would every, I wake up three or four times a night to piss. It's hard every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never not hard. Yeah. Man, I need to somebody, I need somebody to deflate <laughs> me, man. I need somebody to go up in my ass and just deflate it, dude. Yeah. Finish it off. Yeah. I need it to... I got a doctor's appointment tomorrow, man. I'm going to try to get him to get me the egg, dude. Yeah? Yeah. You don't need it. I want it. <laughs> I feel like he's going to shove his fingers up my ass, though. Spent most of my time in Coochie, Tainan, and Long An. Headquarters in Bien Ho. I, however, did not earn a bronze star. A worthy accomplishment. As to the questions you posed, one... I was intrigued by the unique manner in which you originally chose to communicate, the map, the poetic verse, etc. Two, the cases it brought to mind were Ted Bundy, Henry Lucas, and Otis Toole, as well as two security intelligence cases handled by the FBI. 
In those cases, authorities as well as the accused carried on a dialogue. The first three were especially reminiscent as they were serial cases. Three, in response to the questionnaire letter, the matters where I sought illumination were those unsolved cases to which you alluded. It did appear you wished to provide details by virtue of the information you provided. I feel you do have a desire to clear up some pending matters. I, of course, have no idea as to your goals. As to my goal, several years ago, our family experienced a tragic event. My son-in-law was murdered when he walked in on a burglary in progress. Those involved were apprehended and the case was adjudicated. The void created by my son-in-law's death can never be filled, but there is great solace and closure. I decided to do as much as I can to assist others in finding closure. I have wondered if you, too, would experience a form of release by revealing information that would give some peace to parties who you have a relationship to any case where you have information. Perhaps we can both achieve our goals. Mine, closure. Yours? Pussy. (laughs) (laughs) Both the district attorney and our office are aware of the fact that we have written each other. I hope you will consider to continue. Sincerely, Charles J. Hess. Brown wrote back in July as if the murky clues he'd given the Apelso County authorities about seven sacred virgins buried under some sort of lake were so transparent any nine-year-old could have cracked the case. He repeatedly he repeated the clues, asked some more hypothetical questions about criminal responsibility, and requested the address of the Ford Motor Company truck and car development divisions. He's going to make a new fucking Ford, dude. Oh, yeah. Hess replied 10 days later in August, still looking to establish a rapport. He tried to ally the nature of his training and work in Vietnam with Browns. What a peculiar world in which we live. About 30 years ago, we were both trained to dispatch human beings and sent 12,000 miles away for that purpose. Now you are incarcerated for just that, and I am investigating the who, what, and where of it. The gods (laughs) must be bewildered. Hess included the Ford Motor Company address Brown asked for, the first of many errands he ran to curry favor. He also included a photograph of himself holding a yellow fin tuna. There were certain words I would never use, Hess told me, like the word murder. I would use case instead. I would never say stab or kill. I always tried to mix a little lightheartedness and something personal in with some solid questions. There has to be a certain ebb and flow to it. But no matter where you are in the correspondence, you always, always have to write in a respectful manner. Whether they're a criminal or agent, an idologue. The whole trick is to be able to find some common ground and do it sincerely. And not judge them. You cannot fake the fact that you may despise them or what they've done. You can't fake who you are. With that snapshot of himself and the tuna, Hess got a bite. Brown knew what kind of fish it was and asked in his reply if it tastes as good as it looked, like pussy. He didn't have a lot of protein in his prison diet, he said. He didn't think the gods were bewildered. He thought they were ecstatic. The god of the Old Testament time, and again, killed thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children. It eludes me how humans can worship such an evil, vindictive creature. More important, in his third letter, he asked if Hess would like to hear the beginning of a possible story 
entitled How to Create a... What followed was an account of a childhood. You could only infer that he was speaking of his own because he was still careful to hedge his disclosures. How old am I? Three, maybe? What are my feelings? Safe, secure, warm, loved, with a sense of belonging. All of these feelings are about to end, never to be again. I heard my mother say, don't tell him. Don't tell me what? One of my brothers runs in and says, they're coming to take your bed. Ha ha. I run and climb into my crib. I'm thinking they can't take my bed. This is my place. They can't take it. Someone, I can't remember who, took me out of my crib. I'm screaming and crying. Then they take my crib and put it in the back of a black pickup truck and drive away. I run back to where the crib was, curl in a ball and cry and cry and cry. Now it's night and time for bed. My mother takes me into a strange room. There are two beds in this room. There are two older boys in each bed. Where am I going to sleep? She puts me in one of the beds between two boys. As soon as she leaves, the boys start hitting me and telling me to get out of their bed. I start crying. Each night, I am put into one of the two beds. This nightly ritual goes on and on, night after night. What a wonderful childhood I have. This is just the beginning, the endless joy of my childhood. <laughs> it was not until the fifth letter in September 2002 that Hess began to feel he had an idea of who Brown was and their developing synchronicities might yield confirmable facts. Brown had taken to saluting Hess with a jaunty, <coughs> Hello, Charlie Hess. Hess felt familiar enough to address Brown as Robert, but he was also frustrated. Brown was now calling the Pontiac Trans Am a Grand Am. Roasted. The oft-repeated allusions to a high priestess had sent Hess pouring fruitlessly over the literature of tarot cards and hunting in the Bible. Robert, he wrote, are we talking about a real person or is the high priestess allegorical? I continue to feel you are trying to provide me with specifics, but for some reason we don't get over that last hurdle. Hess was about to go into the hospital to have the first of two hip replacement operations. He'd been stockpiling his own blood. This guy's crazy. He's crazy. He was 75, and there was always a chance he might not get off the table. Pressing in the name of the trust he felt he earned, he challenged Brown to explain himself, saying he'd put all his cards on the table. Won't you consider laying out just one verifiable instance if this is just a game tell me and we can still continue correspondence and exchange philosophies it was his first put up or shut up later letter scott fisher told me charlie intentionally told the truth and risked inflaming the situation Hmm. the appeal the persuasion the brinksmanship none of it worked Brown came back six minutes later, six weeks later in December, relieved to learn Hess made it through the operation, but loaded for bear. He revived his complaint that he'd been framed by a planted fingerprint in the Heather Church murder. He mocked Hess's occasional use of the first person plural. 
He said, I will not hand it to us on a golden platter with nothing to gain from my efforts. What could I possibly gain eludes me for now. A week into the new year, Hess wrote, You know, Robert, I do not believe I would put the details on a golden platter without first receiving the assurances you consider important. On the other hand, it makes me wonder why you wrote in the first place. You must have been moved by something. Brown's reply nine days later was uncharacteristically reflective. You were wondering why I wrote in the first place, Brown said. I don't know that I could answer that to your satisfaction. I'm not sure that I even know. But for the first time, Brown printed both his name and return address on the letter, not just the envelope, a negligible detail that perhaps seemed insignificant to Heath Smitten Fisher and subtly altered, perhaps by a few grains of introspection, the balance between Hess and Brown began to shift. Hess had already emphasized that almost everyone at the sheriff's office thought Brown was giving him the runabout. And, sure enough, the indignation of a habitual liar unable to find a market for the truth flared in Brown's letter at the end of January 2003. As far as something tangible that will convince someone that there really are cases out there, I tried before... With the white grand am. I guess some people don't rate. Also, the sanitation companies do a great job of disposal. Oh, no. <laughs> Still trying to establish his credibility, Brown wrote five weeks later that he thought he would throw a couple of things your way in hopes of adding a credence to the whole shebang. He dropped two more details about the right grand am, which would prove to be crucial. The investigators ought to search the missing person's file for a young army wife, he said. More pertinent, the husband recovered the car himself. If that doesn't ring any bells, nothing will. And then he went on to a second matter. In addition to bolstering credence, I am mainly curious of the outcome of the following. I thought long and hard about picking an incident that would not be lost among many others. A very small town seemed to be my best bet. Small towns don't forget such rare happenings. The town I choose is Flatonia, Texas. They don't get much smaller. The year was approximately 1984 or 1985. A young woman was killed and her body was found near this town. The last I heard was that her husband was being charged with the murder. I'm curious as to the eventual outcome. Please let me know. Afterwards... We may talk some more on this. Texas does like to kill people. That should give you something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> what an infernal madman. <laughs> He's making me lose it. Indeed it did. Lou Smith learned via a phone call from the Fayette County, Texas Sheriff's Office that the death of a 22-year-old waitress named Melody Ann Bush... Uh, fit Brown's descriptions. Uh, she had an argument in a bar with her husband the night she died. Her body was found in a culvert about two miles away from Flatonia on March 30th, 1984. The coroner established she'd be dead for five days. The cause of death was acute acetone poisoning. What may have been a kind of implicit pressure to hold 
His end of an unspoken contract seemed to peak in May 2003. That's when I graduated high school in Colorado Springs. It's all adding up. When Brown wrote an extraordinary five-page letter, it invited Hess on a hypothetical trip around the United States. It was, in essence, a text to go with that provocative map Brown sent to El Paso County authorities in March 2000. The narrative was written as a jaunty travelogue with each town or geographical location supposedly the burial site of a murder victim. It seemed as if the breakthrough Hess had been hoping for was imminent. The information you provided certainly puts us a long way down the road, and I believe we are about to move some of the big boulders, Hess replied eight days later. Robert, we will still need a local case or two where we actually find a body and hopefully some attendant facts. The Grand Anding may be a good place to start. I mean, all the specific information so we can use our time efficiently. We have traveled a long way together, and I hope that in some way we can make the rest of the trip easier on you. Had they traveled further than Brown wanted to go? Not three months later, the line went dead. Brown wrote a letter on January 14, sorry, July 14, 2003, saying he wasn't feeling well and wasn't up to any investigations or interrogations. He complained that he had often in the past, as he had often in the past, about the medical treatment he was receiving. And what may be the paradigm moment of narcissism in the entire correspondence, the man who said he had been murdering people for 25 years was outraged that the Department of Corrections wasn't living up to its legally mandated obligation to provide him with adequate health care. I, prov- I find the selective application of the law to be an indication of humanity in general, Brown wrote. I can only be grateful that I'm not part of this humanity. Oh, my God. And then after that, the 14th letter from Brown. Letters stop coming. Hess wrote in September to ask what's up. No reply. Like some cast off suitor, he wrote again in February of 2004, wondering what he'd done wrong. No reply. He reiterated offers he'd made to Brown to get Brown examined by an outside doctor. He mentioned again his contacts with an author who was still keen on writing about the adventures of Robert Brown, but nothing Hess offered drew a response. Another seven months went by. Hess was baffled. He could only think of one last thing to do. The Colorado State Penitentiary was about an hour south by car near Cannon City. Scott Fisher drove Hess down in his GMC Yukon on the morning of September 9, 2004. It was a drastic step. This cold shot. But what did they have to lose? Hess had made arrangements with the Colorado Department of Corrections to visit Brown. When they arrived, Fisher waited in his car. Hess was shown into a small visiting room where inmates usually met with lawyers. Shortly, escorted by guards... The man behind the signature came shuffling in. His hands were cuffed behind his backs. His leg hobbled in iron. He had multiple backs. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. (laughs) He was dressed in an orange prison jumpsuit and flip-flops. His beard came down to his chest. Do you know who I am? Hess asked. No, said Brown. I'm the guy that's been writing your letters. Oh! 
Mm. Hess reached around behind Brown's back and awkwardly shook his cuffed hand. That's how they eject him off. Yeah. Awkwardly shook it. Hess asked why Brown stopped riding. It was nothing personal. Brown said he was down to pennies in in his prison commissary account and didn't have the money for paper and stamps. God damn. Send him some money. Send him some cash. But you know why he probably ran that off? Fucking Apple Dumpling Gang? Why? He's probably probably writing multiple people. Oh, yeah, for sure. For an hour, Hess listened as Brown vented his frustrations with the medical treatment he was getting. He had headaches. He had bad arthritis in his back and knees. He said the medication he was taking was making him dizzy. He had no faith in the Department of Corrections doctors. Duh. I don't give a fuck about you. (laughs) They don't don't give a fuck about us out here. (laughs) I hope I haven't caused you any distress just walking in here, Hess said. It's okay. Would you mind if we clarified some of the information we talked about before? Hess brought up the Grand Dam lady, whose identity the investigators still had been unable to establish. Brown said that when he lived in Colorado Springs in the late 80s, he killed a young woman who lived in an apartment complex nearby. Hess was startled to hear the word, especially given killed. He said he killed her, and that shocked Hess. Especially given how strenuously he and Brown had avoided it in their correspondence. And Brown, in future meetings, almost never used it again. It was one of a few words that were like a no-go, red-coated road in Vietnam. Kill, murder, rape. By comparison... Brown seemed curiously comfortable with stab, strangle, or the piece of diction that seemed to define his icy association from the horror of his acts, disarticulate. Hess was struck by how nonchalant Brown seemed, not just about his being there face to face, but also what he was sharing, confessing. They'd been sitting nearly three hours when the guards rapped on the door and said Brown had to be back in his cell in 10 minutes for the midday headcount. I appreciate the way we were able to talk, Hess said. Can we restart communicating? Yeah, Brown said. Any objection to you, to me coming back to see you in person? No, come whenever you want. Two weeks after their visit, Head had a $20 account sent to Brown's commissary account to help him buy stamps and paper. And in mid-October, the first letter from Brown since the hiatus arrived in Hess's mailbox. It laid out the quid pro quo, what Brown wanted for any further details about his deeds of interest. He wanted two things. One, a thorough examination by a real doctor, coupled with assurances that all his medical problems would be addressed. Commiserate with the 21st century. Two, to be transferred from the Colorado Department of Corrections. Tucked into the envelope with the letter outlining the terms for his cooperation was a separate sheet of paper preferring the details about the death of Melody Bush. The message in stark letter, capital letters, read, Flatonia, Ether, Ice Pick. The details Brown offered were convincing not so much because they jived exactly with the coroner's report. 
which made no mention of ice pick wounds and listed the cause of death as acetone poisoning. But because they were so specific and offered such conviction and follow-up interviews, Brown said he sprayed ether into a rag and held it over Bush's face. He had ether handy because he used it to kickstart the diesel engine in his truck. No ice pick wounds in the coroner's report. Tell the Texas authorities to disinter Bush's body and examine the area around her ribs for nicks, he said. The discrepancies in that case still have not been resolved, but El Paso detectives have no doubt Robert Brown killed Melody Bush. Hess went in for hip replacement surgery in November and was not able to schedule a second visit with Brown until December. On the second visit, Hess persuaded the guards to uncuff Brown's hands, and he and Brown talked about a body found in Sugarland, Texas, Nydia Mendoza, a 17-year-old topless dancer from Panama. Panama. When Hess described the visit, I asked if, having seen the autopsy photographs of Mendoza's corpse, which graphically showed how Brown had disarticulated her legs and severed her head with a dull butcher knife from the kitchenette mm. in what he called the rather nice motel, where he strangled her and then carried the pieces of her body out to his foul his flower delivery van in a suitcase and dump them off Highway 59. Morbid florist. Morist. Hess had ever found himself too repulsed to sit and chat about the new inmate's health and how Brown's beloved New Orleans Saints were faring that season in the NFL. Was it hard to shake his hand knowing what he had done? It upsets people when I say this, but it wasn't hard, Hess said. I can't let myself feel revulsion. If I feel revulsion in my gut, he's going to pick up on it. Yeah, well, he's also like a fucked up a, a person. A murderer, too. a killer, a torturer. Yeah. He's the same guy. He just did it for the government. Got paid. When we were talking about the Mendoza case, I asked him a question, and he'd give me one-line answers. One month after another, once, God damn it, one after another, I'd say, tell me what happened. I met a girl in a bar. And then what? I took her to a motel. And after that, I paid her. And then, then we had sex. What happened next? I strangled her. And then what did you do? Then I put her into a bathtub and cut off her legs. (laughs) How'd you do that? And he showed me. He put his hand down near his groin and said, You circumscribe the thigh with a knife here, like this, until you hit hard tissue and you can't cut. Then you twist it back and you tear it off like a turkey leg. (laughs) Now when I'm hearing this, I can't jump up and say, Jesus Christ, Robert, how can you do that? I have to say, okay, like it's something everybody does. But you've done it too. You did it. Have you seen it done? You did it, man. You did it. You did it. He says, I feel like Viet- Vietnamese women have the easiest way to snap a leg off. They got them skinny ass legs, man. Oh, he did it, dude. He did it. Fuck this guy, too. Fuck both of them. Yeah. Being on contract with the government doing that and then being like, I like this. Like, you already like that. Yeah, you were into it, dude. You're he in- likes it too, just as much as you do. One was a job, one was his job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't listen, ladies. 
Put the fucking spoon in the gravy. <laughs> and I told her if she didn't put the spoon in my gravy one more goddamn time, I was yeah. going to fucking put Agent Dorn all over her fucking... What would be awesome, man, is like if he was going to like Luby's and Ryan's and he's like watching women put the fucking spoon in the gravy that worked there. And he's like, you cunt. You <laughs> really fucked it up. Look at the gravy. It's got a spoon right there. Yeah. Okay. Then he says, I have to put the horror of it out of my mind. And when I walk out of the prison, by the time I get to the front gate, I'm not thinking about it. I'm thinking about getting some Mexican food. I never missed a night of sleep because of something Robert Brown told me. Yeah, and also because you're a CIA fucking murderer. You're a spook. You kill people. Yeah. In two years of letters on two face-to-face meetings, Hess had been able to get the details from Brown, mostly in dribs and drabs. But in late January 2005, having elicited key facts about the homicides in Flatonia and Sugarland, Hess drew from Brown a story in which the inmate didn't mince <coughs> words about what he had done. He told Hess that in 1983, while living in an apartment complex owned by his brother, Donald, in Cushada, Los- Louisiana, he had stabbed his next-door neighbor to death with a screwdriver. From a Louisiana state trooper, Hess Ooh. learned of an unsolved murder that fit the given details. A local newspaper reported that Wanda Faye Hudson had been fatally stabbed with a knife. But the autopsy report noted that the murder weapon was a screwdriver. Brown's a name. Flathead. Yeah, probably. In the Doesn't ribs. Say. Doesn't say. Why? Well, you know, because, like, that's probably the place to go. Because you can, like, get in between a rib cage, like, right between the ribs. What are you doing? And get in there and then start prying them apart, oh. separating them. If you can separate ribs with the flathead. Ooh. That's what you do to pedophiles. Just saying, you don't have to do it, but I, and, and I'm not recommending want, it, yeah, but that's pretty it, cool. That's what you want to do. Just yeah. pop them apart. Yeah, separate them. Man. Get God. that floating rib. Oh, my oh. God, dude. Well, <laughs> Brown's name surfaced during the initial investigation by Louisiana authorities because Hudson had told her uncle that Robert Brown had replaced the locks on her front door. Come on. And she thought that he had a key. About two months after the January confession, Brown explained that he had worked as the maintenance man in his brother's apartment building, and Hudson's death was a spur-of-the-moment thing. He had opened the door reached in with a screwdriver and removed the bracket that held the security chain. Hudson was asleep. Brown had a can of red ant killer, which contained chloroform. He soaked a rag with it and put it on Hudson's face. The report from the autopsy noted 25 stab wounds in the chest area and four in the area of the vagina. Oh my God. Come, come, come. (laughs) Not long after the authorities took Hudson's body from the room, Brown himself moved in, cleaning up the blood he spilled and repainting the walls, even sleeping in the bed of the woman he slaughtered. Yeah. He loved it. Loved it. Lived it, loved it. At a meeting in mid-February of senior sheriff's office investigators and officials from the Department of Corrections, Hess and Smith and Fisher gave a PowerPoint presentation of the evidence in the out-of-state cases. Sheriff Makita, Chief Joe Breister of the Law Enforcement Bureau and CMDR Brad Shannon, commander, sorry. Brad Shannon of the investigations divisions thought it was time to bring in a sworn officer. They assigned Jeff Moore 
47, a methodical detail-oriented detective who at one time was married to Lou Smith's daughter. Well, well, well. What reimagined, I'm sorry, what remained maddeningly, maddeningly elusive was any corroborating evidence of a Brown homicide in El Paso County. Five years after Brown first mentioned it, the only local murder case still known as the Grand Dam Lady case. <laughs> Grand Dam Pam, dude. The Grand Dam Pam. <laughs> El Paso authorities might provide crucial information to other jurisdictions, but they couldn't prosecute crimes that occurred outside of the county. The enigma of the Grand Dam Lady be evil, the Apple Dumpling Gang from the beginning. Anybody who draws a grand name smokes Virginia Slims, dude. Oh, yeah. It's Grand Dam Pam. Yeah, dude. Now with Nor abroad, they made a concerted effort to break it open. Knowing El Paso authorities were working on a deal under which he might be transferred to another state prison system, Brown began giving up details readily. With a map of the city, Brown tried to locate the apartment complex Near his where the Grand Dam Pam and her husband and daughter lived in 1987. Scott Fisher made a 360-degree panorama of photographs, and at a meeting with Hess, Brown was able to pinpoint the Grand Dam Pam ladies' apartment complex at 4410 East Pikes Peak Avenue. Whoa. And to show where she had lived on the north side of the building, an apartment later identified as 107, 108, or 109. He pointed out the quick stop convenience store where he had worked and where he had asked the young wife out on a date. She and her husband used to come in and rent videos. Her husband and their baby daughter had gone out of town, he said, either to Miami or New Orleans. Brown and Grandam Pam drove in the white car to a movie. Afterwards, they went back to Brown's apartment and there, he strangled her, which she was cheating on her husband, so, you know, shouldn't mm-hmm. kill her. But Yeah, she used another one that forgot to put the spoon in <laughs> He strangled her, threw some blankets over the body, took her keys, went to, the, went to her apartment, and took a Sony color TV. Upgrade. He waited until the next night to dismember her in his bathtub. Mm-hmm. He said, because he was tired. He removed a big cluster of rings with a lot of small diamonds before disposing of the body parts in a dumpster. Brown's information sent investigators off looking for TV set serial numbers, long gone security guards, and stolen wedding rings. Without the victim's name or the names of her survivors who might have filed a missing persons or stolen vehicle report, they didn't have a case. They'd had the police department look at missing persons files and stolen car reports, but nothing had turned up. Finally, in April 2005, they got a name. In March, Noor asked the Colorado Bureau of Investigations to search for all stolen and recovered Pontiacs in El Paso County from 1986 to 1988. On April 14th, a list came back with 172 vehicles. Using the vehicle identification numbers, Detective Rick Frady, who specialized in auto theft investigations, was able to narrow the 172 Pontiac models down to nine Grand Dams. The detectives were hoping to match a registered Grand Dam with the owner of approximately 100 names they had gotten out of a city directory of people who had lived at 4410 Pikes Peak Avenue between 1986 and 1988, but none of the names matched. Detective Frady, however, 
recognized that one of the VIN numbers had a mistake in it, a character out of place. When he had rechecked, the name of the owner came back to Joseph Allen Sperry. And on the list of former tenants, there was also a Joseph Sperry. Nor couldn't find a phone number for Joseph Allen Sperry, but an internet database listed him as a possible associate of a woman named Amy Charity in West Palm Beach, Florida. Dun, dun, dun. The number was listed. He dialed. A woman answered. He explained who he was and asked if she knew Joseph A. Sperry. Joe, telephone, she said. Sperry not only confirmed that he lived at 4410 East Pikes Peak, he also had a case number for the missing persons report he had filed with the Colorado Springs Police Department, which no one in the legal system had been able to find. He told Knorr that his TV had been stolen, and he gave detectives the full name and date of birth, complete with the description of his wife. He had last seen her around November 1st, 1987, when he left to take the three-month-old daughter, Amy, to stay with his mother, Amy Charity, while Sperry and his young wife sorted out their marital troubles. The name of the local woman Robert Brown killed was, dude, no fucking way. Who is it? No way. Come on. Can't be. Mm-hmm. Pamela Sperry. It's fucking Grandam Pam, dude. It couldn't have been anything else. It's literally Grandam Pam. I've been talking about this guy this killed Grandam Pam, dude. Grandam Pam. No, her name was actually Rosia Chili Del Peeler Sperry. Ah. She was 15. Ah. This guy sucks, dude. God. Her body had never been found. It's doubtful that the district attorney for the fourth judicial district could have ever made a case against Brown for the murder of Rocio Sperry without producing her body. Brown most likely pled guilty to her death to speed the transfer. That was the price of his cooperation in the first place. At one point in July 2005, displeased with the progress of the discussions, he announced in a letter to Hess, I have decided to end this whole affair. As of the above date, I terminate all negotiations, etc. But he finally got the long-sought medical examination he wanted. By special dispensation, a doctor who attended Lou Smith's church gave Brown a physical and found nothing that the prison doctors hadn't already been treating. Brown's medical complaints abated after that. As for a transfer to another location... Department of Corrections had worked out a deal with the Minnesota Department of Corrections to move Brown to the Minnesota prison system. During a visit with Hess, almost a year after the fate of Rocio Sperry had been clarified, Brown was fretting about the delays. I wish there were a way to expedite this, he said. I can tell you how to expedite it, Hess replied. You go in and you plead to the Sperry case. Brown agreed, and on July 27, 2006, he was standing in district court pleading guilty to the first degree murder of Rocia Chila Del Pilar Sperry. In the courtroom that morning were Joe Sperry, who once served time for aggravated battery after getting into a fight because he'd been accused of murdering his wife, and Amy, his 19 year old daughter who had grown up thinking her father might have killed her mother. They spoke during sentencing that immediately followed the plea. Joe Sperry cursed the man 
who in killing his wife, Rocio, had destroyed much of his life. Amy Sperry extended her deepest gratitude to the state of Colorado for bringing justice and ending her doubt. And as for Robert Brown, she added, I would like to say, may God be with his soul. Jesus Christ, dude, this is so long, sorry. The new member, I'm sorry, God, I got a piece so bad, my brain, you know how my brain's getting, but we're almost there. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys for tuning in this We can pause. This is compelling. Yeah. We can't pause, Brian's okay. not in here. The members of the Apple Dumpling Gang have probably swapped their last stories over coffee at the old Heidelberg pastry shop and cafe. During the winter, Scott Fisher's wife, Roxanne, a nurse anesthesiast, had found a better job. They moved up to the mountains in Breckenridge, Colorado. This June, Lou Smith plans to leave to try to set up other cold case units around Colorado, Arizona, and Kansas. Mm -hmm. As for Charlie Hess... He celebrated his 80th birthday on April 21st. He remains, he told me, embarrassed that the promises he made to Robert Brown have not been fulfilled. The transfer to Minnesota fell apart when the Brown case became public last summer, and Brown remains at the Colorado Territorial Correctional Facility. El Paso authorities are still working to make good on their promise, according to Detective Knorr, who continues to work on cold cases. A little more than a year ago, Hess got a new correspondence going with another inmate in another state. One who was a very different personality from Robert Brown's, but who also has murders to discuss. Yeah, I got a piss. Sorry. We're almost done. We are almost done. Yep. This is big old balls. Got to clear my throat here. I don't know, man. This is is pretty cool because... Dude just comes in and uh, tortured a bunch of people, and he's a piece of shit, but he's like a... It's okay for him to be a piece of shit, but he's coming in and, like, opening up cold case files, but he also brought some closure to this case with this uh, ex-husband or and the daughter, which is badass, but also, I know this guy was doing some wild shit to some uh, some people over there in Asia. I'm going to be honest, I haven't been this buzz in a while. Now, if I shot cum tonight, it would taste like beer, I feel like. Pineapple beer is the first thing I drink, so that's probably good for your prostate, from what I understand. As far as the pineapple goes, pineapple beer, I don't know about. But it was delicious, and I don't know the name of it. We also had a shot of Wild Turkey 101, also delicious. And the way that gasoline is delicious. Um, yeah, I don't know. You guys want to watch me put this beer funnel up my pee hole? Better hurry up, Chris. I'm about to put this beer funnel up my pee hole. Yeah, I got a big pee hole, dude. Yeah. A bee hole. Big <sighs> pee hole. Man, you look relieved, man. You get a fight with a cat? Sorry, sorry. Why? You got scratches on you, man. Where? On your face. It's probably just blood vessels from squatting. It looked like they're opened. Where? Right above your eyebrow. Looks like somebody punched you. What'd you do, man? I don't know. Who'd you kill? Oh, I got a zit. That ain't a zit. That's a zit. No, sir. That right there? Yep. That's a zit. That's an open wound. <laughs> that was somebody punch, try to punch you in the eye and hit your eyebrow. No, I did that. 
Yeah. I'll see what happens. Self defense. All right. Yeah. Yo. <laughs> uh, we're very close to the end, and uh, sorry to pause for a second because this is crazy. This is a great article. Yeah. Much better than I could have pulled out of my ass. So yeah, this guy gets another thing going. It says, Hess says he hopes to close more cases soon under different auspices. In January, he received the Sheriff's Meritorious Service Award. There was a big dinner, lots of warm words. Only weeks before, he was asked by the El Paso County Sheriff's Office to sign a confidentiality form. He was insulted. What had he ever done that suddenly the bureaucrats didn't trust him not to compromise privileged information? He turned in his office keys. Quit is too strong, he said. I've left. With a co-offer, Davin C., he is writing a book titled, Hello, Charlie, Letters from a Serial Killer. I called Hess at home one evening late last month to take another run at the secret of his motivation. I tried. The readers will be disappointed, Gambit. You're really clever, he said. And then he must have turned to Joe because he said he thinks I'll give it up to him because his readers really need it. They had a good laugh and even their dogs started barking. The missing puzzle pieces would be revealed in his book, has said. We got to talking more about whether there were really more categories of people than intellectuals and those who got shit done. Indeed, there were. You have educated people and uneducated people, has said. You have competent people and incompetent people. And you have people who are just average. What category are you in? Inmate suspicion made him hesitate. Then he said, I'm in a category all by myself. Yeah, a fucking CIA murderer. Yeah. Anyway, very interesting. Yeah. Wild case. Way to break the case. Cool story. Everyone involved is dead now. Mm-hmm. Hail Satan. Pretty much. Folks, thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Big shout out to our sponsor, beerbongs.com. Take a look at that. You get a funnel, cram it in your tunnel. Get a shotgun key, make yourself go pee. Samtalent.com. Too Big to Fail Press has got a brand new book coming out. He wanted us to tell you about. Check it out. He's got a book coming out? No, someone else on his. Oh, the rat looking dude? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Some art rock and fruit. Wrote something deep. You can check it out. I'm sure it's a good book or Sam wouldn't fuck with it. Too Big yeah. to Fail Press. Samtalent.com. We'll see you fucking F-words on the next episode of Death Metal Dicks. Also, shout out to Fluids for writing our theme. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Fluids. The cream theme. Love to cream and I love yeah, our theme. Yeah, we're honkling, dude. We're back to honkles as I've a team. Honked. I mean, you've been honkling. You're back. I'm honkling. You're driving. No. Just kidding. Yeah, yeah. See you guys. <laughs> <laughs>